Hello, what's up? Rich Ryan here, bringing you another installment of the Reinforced Running Podcast. We are going to talk about endurance training, OCR, strength training, and nutrition. Today we have Carolyn Stocker, who is a running coach, a registered dietitian, and a certified strength and conditioning coach, which is a triple threat. So Carolyn has a huge knowledge base, and we touch on a lot of different topics. We talk about intuitive eating for the endurance athlete. We talk about why endurance athletes should lift heavy weights. And we chat about snowshoeing as Carolyn is an elite level snowshoer. So a lot of really cool topics that we touched on. Carolyn knows a lot. We had a great conversation on a lot of different topics. So I hope you enjoy. Here is Carolyn Stocker. So cool, Carolyn. I appreciate you hopping on today. I'm really excited to kind of dive into your background. You have one of the most extensive backgrounds when it comes to a running coach that you really could have. So I want to like really talk about your education and what you've done with in, in within the sport. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of ways we can go with this conversation. Before we really dive in, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are as an athlete and as a coach? Great. Yeah. I'm also super excited to be a part of this and thank you for inviting me to be on, Rich. Um, so I'm born and raised Massachusetts. I was an athlete all my life, started running in pretty much as when I was five years old, but really found the love of running in high school as an avid soccer player, like many runners. Uh, and I started to get really, really good. And so with that, I was like, okay, what are the pieces to the puzzle to get better as a runner, as an athlete. So I dove into what could I major in in college in order to focus on this human performance and and combining my favorite things of science and human performance. So um, I immediately enrolled at the University of Maine where I did run track and cross country, studied nutrition, graduated with my bachelor's degree in nutrition. Then in order to become a dietitian, you have to go through 1200 hours of supervised practice. Um, so you go through like the hospital setting, community settings, food service settings. And through that experience, I learned, I don't really want to work with the general population. Like being an athlete, I knew I wanted that motivated individual that environment of goal setting and achieving goals and reaching those goals. So after I finished that supervised practice, I knew I wanted to get my master's degree. Um, so I reached out to some connections I had and was like, okay, what can I get my degree in to combine nutrition and sports performance. So I'm from the Springfield, Massachusetts area. And so I reached out to Springfield College, which is one of the meccas for strength and conditioning. Was very grateful to get in. Um, spent two years there completing my master's in strength and conditioning, working with athletes of all levels, still um, incorporating nutrition in that by counseling athletes. Um, was fortunate to stay there and teach. For a year after my grad work and was still the director of sports nutrition, worked in the weight room with some athletes. And now I'm really combining all of my favorite things. Like I'm so grateful of my background and education to bring me where I am today. I'm still teaching now at UMass Amherst. I'm consulting athletes from a strength and conditioning perspective, nutrition perspective. Um, I work at a run specialty store. So combining my love of 
running and fitness. So that brings me where I am today from like a running standpoint. I'm just a leisurely runner now. I'm 99.9% a trail runner. Being in New England, I love the snow. So I snowshoe run. I wish I liked cross-country skiing more, but I found my love in snowshoeing. Yeah. And I want to dive into the snowshoeing part of it down the road, just because it's really interesting. And like, it, it, it comes up from time to time, especially in the winter, just when you want to get it back out on the trails, but I don't know anything about snowshoeing at all. So when you went into school, were you thinking like the nutrition aspect of things it was to help, like you thought the general population, like what kind of jobs would you get coming out of school with that, like a registered dietitian? Um, and before you realized that you wanted to kind of pivot and kind of get back with the athletes. Yeah. So going into undergrad, I honestly had no idea what a, I knew what a dietitian was, but I didn't really know what career could be made of it. I right. played around with med school a little bit. I played around with nursing, um, but I really loved food, loved cooking, loved how food and the body comes together. And a lot of those jobs right off the bat work are in the hospital setting, the clinical setting, um, or in the community setting. So examples are like WIC, Women, Infant, Children, SNAP, ED, um, food service settings. Sports nutrition is a growing field, but it's really mm. not easy to get started in because there aren't really many sports dietitians out there willing mm -hmm. to take a dietetic intern or undergrad students because they just don't have um, the connect the ability yet. And like the combination that you have in terms of your education and experience is kind of what if I had to create a curriculum of like becoming a professional like running coach, like it's kind of what it would look like. I mean, there is no degree for that. I wish there were, you know, because that's what I would have majored in. But um, but I think that that as this like coaching becomes a more viable option. And it's not like people kind of patching stuff together and then just trying to get their name out there, which is kind of what it is now, you know, uh, I think that having that formalized education, it would probably look a lot like what you have in particular, and especially on the nutrition side, side, and then, and having such a vast experience in that I think is, is critical in helping the athlete piece. And I think it's, it's so important to have that part. And I know when I help athletes with nutrition, I, I start with like, kind of like the numbers being like, okay, like your, your output is this or your input should be this. And it's just because just to create that awareness so that people know like how much they're actually expending as an endurance athlete, which is, which is a lot and probably a lot more than what people actually need uh, or would think that they need to eat. But from a longevity standpoint, just like a practical application standpoint, it's like a little exhausting. It's a little annoying to like track everything that you're, that you're doing. And it's kind of a pain. So like, I like to have it as like a jump off, but when we were talking before you had mentioned that like intuitive eating is really part of your philosophy with that. And, and it's kind of like gaining some momentum, uh, in, in the nutrition space. So could you tell us a little bit more about what, what you mean when you say intuitive eating? Yeah, uh, I say intuitive eating is probably going to be the 2021 thing to do when it comes to nutrition and dieting. Um, intuitive eating is ultimately just listening to your body and eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, not getting rid of foods. One of my biggest nutrition principles is there's no such thing as good or bad foods. And I always mm -hmm. encourage people and athletes that I'd rather you eat 
80% nutrient dense quality foods 365 days a year than eating 100% nutrient dense quality foods five days a week or seven days a year. So I'd rather you spread out, enjoy the foods you love every single day in moderation. Um, and I really talk to athletes, to individuals about how foods make you feel. So before you're eating, during your, during your meal, after your meal, are you hungry? Are you busy? Are you stressed? And almost writing those down and seeing if we if we have any connections of, okay, you're always hungry after eating this. Maybe it's not satisfying your hunger. Okay, you're always busy and you choose this option. What is it that we can do to maybe um, change that cue? Hmm. And yeah, and that seems to be the best way to have people like really understand what's happening, right? Because and I think that you're right that just being so much on the go, and I know this happens to me, it's like, what am I feeling like as I'm eating this food? It's not something that is typically in our our culture to like really understand that the food that we're taking in is really having a huge benefit to like everything that's going on, like psychologically and physically. And like there are signals that we can get from that and like paying attention is a, is a really good way to do that. So like what does that journaling practice look like? Do you – are you literally like sit down with a piece of paper next to you or is it like – eat and then like before you do anything else like think about something like what is that like how can people identify how food's making them feel I think it's just the act of doing it I before I meet with athletes I will have them fill out a three-day food log and trying to be as specific as possible with quantities amount how they cooked the food and then also a column of how do you feel during that and for them that practice they almost get more of that more from that than I do from that because they're like, I always eat this meal, but I am always exhausted during my workout. Okay, maybe it is that food. And they almost come to that conclusion before I even come to that conclusion. Um, so hmm. that's what's really helpful for them. What are where do people have struggles with this? And that's another part why I like the numbers of things. It's just black and white. It's like, just eat 120 grams of protein. And then if you feel like shit after eating that. It's like, okay, maybe that was too much. Maybe that was not enough. And we can like kind of maneuver things around. But what, what would you consider? Like, what, how do people struggle with the intuitive eating part? Uh, it's the schedule of our days. Like you get a lunch mm. break, you need to eat lunch on your lunch break because you might not be able to eat again. Or whoever's doing the meal prep, if they're going to cook dinner at 6 p.m. You are going to eat dinner at 6 p.m. But it's the idea of always having like mini meals around, like having things close so you can have snacks every, I say every three to four hours, we should be putting something into our body um, to help prevent overeating later in the day um, and to just fuel our bodies constantly, our brain and our bodies. We've all mm -hmm. been hungry and hangry. They, it's true. Yeah. We can get grumpy when we don't eat. <laughs> that, is, that is true. And are you able to encourage, like, what's the success rate of having people, like, create this time for themselves? Because ultimately that's what you're kind of talking about, right? It's like, it's like yes, you need to take two more minutes that you probably don't have in your life to, like, sit down and actually think about what's going on, to, like, write things out in journal. Like, how can, how can, like, what would you tell people to encourage them to 
to like create this space. Hmm. Yeah. And that kind of brings about like behavior change and in the athletes or the person's like readiness to change and want to change. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about like, if their goal, their reason they're seeing me is they're just tanking their workouts by the end of their three hour long run, they're just super exhausted. So having that conversation and relating, maybe it is how you're feeling with food to their performance. It always goes back to performance. And so I'm like that extra two minutes of journaling, writing down how food makes you feel could be the difference in your workouts and long-term health when it comes to performance. Yeah. And a couple of things with that, that you mentioned that I kind of want to pause on and talk about a little bit. And like the behavior change piece is something that is crucial with this. And when I've had people that succeed in the nutrition aspect is when they come in and they're ready to like do the work, but I've also had people like get nutrition coaching and then it's like, okay, this still isn't working. Like, why is this not like happening? And they just expect the change to happen just because they've made that commitment to themselves to like get a coach. And like, that's one piece. That's a one time decision, but it needs to actually like stick. Right. Um, so when do you find that people do like seek you out? Like when, are they on all sorts of ends of the spectrum or are people kind of ready for this change? Usually when they've gotten to me, they are ready to change something in their life or their performance has triggered them to be like, okay, I'm at a point that I do want to see performance enhancements or just to live a longer life. Um, but it, it's a very athlete run appointment. They do most of the talking. And so I almost just ask them questions to get them thinking a little bit more and almost get that um, process out of them and that decision of like, oh, I can do this. Or we talk about barriers to their goals. What will, what will we do when that barrier is presented? What is mm. something or what would you tell someone in a situ similar situation? What advice would you give someone else? Um, so it almost all goes back to them and giving them the autonomy to build those goals and making them realistic so they don't get discouraged and frustrated. Because I think a lot of times people think, okay, I don't eat vegetables, so I'm going to just become a vegetarian tomorrow. And it's like, well, let's slow down. It might not be the most realistic thing. Right. You. I saw this documentary about people eating only plants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so what would be an example of a goal that somebody has when they do come to you? Because uh, for me, when they come to me as like a, just a straight up running coach, it's like, hey, I want to get faster. It's like, cool. Like we can work toward that. No problem. But when it comes to nutrition, they're, they're, people are going to have different reasons. Right. And uh, I've spoken about it on other episodes. Like everyone has a relationship with food that is just like very unique, but everybody has their own their own shit when it comes to nutrition, essentially. So are people coming to you to iron that shit out or are they coming to you with like a specific performance goal or is it like weight loss goal? Like what kind of people are, are, are you typically like, like what kind of goals are you sussing out when you first start talking to people? Yeah. I mean, it all depends the sport, of course. Mm -hmm. So, um, Depending on the sport, it could be a weight loss goal. If it's the, being in collegiate athletics, it's not always the athlete's goal, but the coach's goal for the athlete. Um, right. right now, the majority of the goals are just feeling better during 
workouts and being able to get faster. Lately, it's been a lot of GI issues around running, um, finding foods that might cause some GI upset throughout the day or during running. So that has been um, a more recent goal that I'm seeing. Um, Mm. Sometimes it is just eating um, more nutrient-dense foods in general, right. and how Figuring to incorporate out how to those that. when they don't really enjoy them. Um, but it's always enjoying the foods you love. Don't force yourself to eat the foods because you think you have to. Yeah, it's a great lesson just to have like throughout, right? It's like, don't think that you're do. there's no good or bad when it comes to those terms. So when you need to start with someone who is going through GI distress, like consistently, like what kind of, cause that's definitely common, especially in the endurance field. Right. So for what's like the first step that you would take to help figure that out. So it's walking through the day. And again, it's those journals and writing food logs out. Like if you're feeling nauseous after certain meals, if you're throwing up after certain meals, sometimes it's not that extreme. Um, And then it goes through the during the during nutrition. Are you, consuming just carbohydrates and no fluids. Okay. Maybe that could cause some GI distress. How long are you running? So if you are going over three hours, we need to incorporate a little bit more than just um, carbohydrates sometimes for people. And Mm -hmm. it's what type of GI issues is it? Is it nausea and vomiting or is it diarrhea, gas, Um, There is a whole world of FODMAPs, um, which Mm -hmm. can dive into GI distress. I don't have a lot of experience in that, um, but it is something I read up on and research every day. So maybe we can start talking about um, foods that might be triggering these and eliminate them from the day to see if that affects GI upset. The FODMAPs thing is just like expansive and it's like, that just seems like such a hard road to go down because now I don't have too much of experience of that either, but is it like a spectrum with the FODMAPs just from like what you kind of been reading up on, like where there's low FODMAP and high FODMAP and like where, and do eat, do different foods land differently on a scale or is it like binary? It's either low or high. There's a, it's a scale. There are people that can do some FODMAP foods. There are people who can't do any of them. Um, so it's really, you really have to do it under a dietitian or a physician because it is eliminating foods and paying attention to what foods are triggering um, at what time because foods do fall into different FODMAPs also, which can be mm. complicated as well. It's crazy complicated. Yeah. And a buddy of mine went through this whole long, arduous process. And it, like at the end of the day, it turned out like that it was, and, and you know, people always want to point their fingers at like specific food groups. Like, okay, it's probably dairy or it's like gluten. So if I cut these things out, my buddy went through the whole thing and it was like chickpeas and avocado that was like, like causing a whole bunch of different problems. So it's not that simple in terms of like figuring out like what to do. So yeah, like, like if you're going to go through that, like have some guidance through that for sure. And sometimes um, it's like educating what fiber is. People don't always know like whole wheat bread right before a run might be what's causing that GI upset because there is fiber in it. 
So maybe choosing white bread or sourdough bread instead of that whole grain. That's tough too, because there's this advice that the general public receives that is absorbed by like athletes and runners. And it's like, okay, whole grains, that's what I need to do. And like, yes, if you are on a diet that is all like simple carbohydrates or you're like, you're drinking soda or you're not getting any type of like nutrients or that you're not that active, but the, on the fiber end of things, like for a, an endurance athlete, like you kind of need to be careful. <laughs> Do you see that? Like people that are so dead sets, like I need to eat clean. I need to eat all the new quote unquote nutritious foods I can. Then is it just like they're overdoing it? Exactly. And with fiber, we need hydration. And I, that's always my weakest link. And my goal is to drink more water um, because mm. we're always hydrating. And we might underestimate that when it comes to GI issues as well. Yeah. Not being hydrated. Right. The hydration one's also tricky too. Cause it's like, there's so much information that is just like that counters each, each other over the years. And it's hard to figure out like what is properly hydrated. Do you have a rule of thumb for that? Because there's, t- there's typically rules of thumbs for a lot of things that help people just kind of like wrap their heads around. Like, what do you tell people if they're just like, how much water should I drink? Yeah. I mean, it all depends how much you sweat, honestly. Mm-hmm. So talking to them about, do you find that you're a heavy sweater? You're not much of a heavy sweater. Um, it's more the urine color and the frequency of going to the bathrooms, making sure your lemonade, not apple juice, even when you wake up and that you're going to the bathroom like every couple hours. Like if you find that you've gone five hours without going to the bathroom, you're probably dehydrated. Um, like 32, so a liter, I say about two to three for women, three to four for men of water so about a yeah. gallon for men yeah I usually like, ounces for women i was like um, i usually just kind of think you make like 100 ounces like, yeah probably gonna be okay um and fluids like come in all different forms so fruits and vegetables right. have fluids too like coffee coffee yeah coffee <laughs> coffee um, not, not as much an espresso yeah got to drink a whole bunch of espresso to stay to stay <laughs> hydrated um And is there like one or two common things that you find with endurance athletes that, that are like fair that you see so often, like that are very common issues, like for the endurance athlete in particular? Um, Cause I know like when it comes to a strength training, which I'm sure you can attest to as well, like people are always like, Oh yeah. Like runners, they have tight hips. (laughs) Is there like, uh, is there a nutrition equivalent to tight hips for strength training when it comes to endurance athletes? For nutrition? For yeah. Training? Yeah. Hmm. That's a good, I think it's just practicing eating during mm. exercise. I think is the biggest thing and not waiting till your actual race or uh, your competition to practice because we want to practice during. And if it ain't, if it isn't working, change it. Don't feel like you have to eat these commercial products because your friend is or that's what they're selling you. There are a lot of things and a lot of real food choices we can try um, to get them to work. So I'd say the during nutrition is probably the most challenging. And that makes sense, right? So yeah. if you're going to run a race to a certain distance, which most adult runners are going to have, be running races that are going to take long enough for them to need nutrition, like practice that just so you do, you do kind of figure that out. Um, cool. So you had also worked in with nutrition at the collegiate level, which I'm very interested in. And 
So for me, a little background is that like, I just don't like class, like formal education to me. I just like makes me cringe. I just can't stand it. Um, I like learning. It's cool, but it's not like the, the learning style of like the formal education, which I've had in the past is just like, doesn't work that well for me. So I was really kind of like pulling teeth and it feels more like memorization and nothing that is, is that practical. But anyway, but if, so whenever I think about going back to school, like I just, I know it, it would be helpful to a certain extent, but I just can't wrap my head around it unless I was to go back in and get an education in, in formal education in nutrition. And with the idea that I would then kind of go into collegiate athletics and try to help with the athletes and have them learn more about the nutrition piece, because my personal experience wasn't great as a collegiate athlete. And I know I've had several conversations with friends and, you know, people that have come on this podcast that have also had really poor experiences when it comes to the uh, nutrition choices, the nutrition pressures that are kind of put on them. So in your experience, when working with like an athletic program, like how can an athletic program or this like secondary education and, and collegiate athletics, like how can they do better as a whole when it comes to like the nutrition for their athletes? Ooh, that's a fantastic so, question. And it's huge. It's like, fix this problem, Carolyn, yeah. please. <laughs> it's really understanding who's coming in contact with those athletes and where are those athletes going to get their nutrition advice. So say a collegiate program, maybe they have a dietitian. Dietitians aren't anywhere. Okay, if they don't, if we don't have a dietitian, where are these athletes going? They're usually going to their strength coaches or their team coaches, sport coaches. So it's maybe investing in getting a dietitian to come in and educate the coaches. So then those coaches can then educate the uh, athletes. And it's inevitable that athletes are going to go to their coaches. They don't always go to the dietitian because of white coat syndrome. They might be afraid to tell their friends they're going to the dietitian. So making sure the staff is educated on nutrition because we know they're going to talk about it with their athletes. In a perfect world, we would have sports dietitians at every university, college, professional team. It should almost be incentivized, like if the per, like kind of how like a GA, like right, like the, they can take classes, right? That's kind of like the the perk of being a GA. But if you're a sport coach, if you are like, you should then have nutrition courses paid for by that should be part of like your salary, kind of. Even if the school you coach for doesn't offer that, like that should be something that you know you can like do in terms to make you more valuable and like you get a pay raise if you get some sort of degree in some in like nutrition or something like that or it's like mandatory after five years that you have to have x amount of credits in nutrition um because i think you're i think that's a great idea in terms of like like training the actual coaches because i know when i went to my coach for uh nutrition help he sent me to the athletic trainer and then I got no help after that. And then I just didn't hear anything after that. And like, it took a lot for me to summon up to like go and seek out help. And then when I didn't get help, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just not getting help. Then I'll figure this out on my own. And when you were working with students, like what was it, what did that look like at, that was at Springfield where you were doing that? Yes. What did that look like there? It was, uh, I was very, very fortunate there. It is such a team environment and collaboration environment. So I taught, 
some of my athletes, I nutrition counseled some of my athletes, and sometimes I coached them in the weight room. So I saw such different aspects mm. of their life. And the support I got from coaches, uh, the athletic trainers, my department was unbelievable that it was it was so easy. <laughs> it really was to do my job and educate everyone that I came in contact with. And this is something else that I think about too. If I did have help, like say that my school program was built like Springfield's was, and I did have access to someone like a professional like you that would kind of be able to see the whole picture, right? And and be able to help me and get to know me and figure it out. Uh, I, as like a 19 or 20 year old, I'm not sure if I would be that receptive. Are they, are they, and that's, and that's something else that like, is it a problem within the system itself of the athletics or is it a byproduct of just like kids being kids and not really knowing what they need to do or how to help themselves or what is actually an issue in that moment? So are the students receptive? Do, do they, <laughs> do they like want to know this stuff? Most of the time, yes. I I would say the majority of the athletes, the students are there because they do want to learn and get ideas. They might have an exercise science background also or a nutrition background themselves. So just getting the experience of, okay, what is it like seeing a dietitian? Uh, and we've all had experiences with coaches, maybe with dietitians, and we know what we like and what we don't like. So maybe that was an impact I had on the athletes as well, as if they do, they want to be a dietitian. Do they want to be a strength coach? Um, and I think being a dietitian and a coach in the collegiate setting, it's making yourself available, not just in your office, like going to the dining hall and eating with them, being in the weight room, going to their practices. So being more involved than just um, that appointment with them. Huh. How would you help? Like, what can you do to help a young athlete? Like say that the listeners are either going into the collegiate level or they're high school athletes or they're parents of a high school athlete or someone's going to be a collegiate athlete. Like what should a young athlete understand about their nutritional needs that like they might not get in, um, their high school education, or they might not have come had enough time to really learn much on their own. Like, what do you think needs is like a really good piece of advice or something they need to like seek out to help them better understand like what they need to do from that respect as like a young person? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is emphasizing food as fuel and feeling tired during your workouts. Um, for females, losing your period. For men, not having sex drive, whatever it may mm -hmm. be, is not normal. Yeah. And so not fueling properly and avoiding food groups when we don't need to will become will lead to increased injury, increased illness, not that longevity of a career in athletics and running and in life in general, academics too. So is it more about like figuring out how to teach them the signals of and do you find that it's like under fueling is is the issue typically? Mm-hmm. So like just kind of teaching them the signals of like what it feels like to be underfueled. You think that's fair? Yeah, underfueled, maybe overtrained, uh, mm. and all food fits. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And yeah, and that kind of brings back to just like the journaling practice, right? Like creating that awareness somehow. Definitely. But as an eighteen-year-old, I'd probably be like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, and, but we can always help. 
Yeah. And depending on the individual, like sometimes I tell them as like, Hey, you have such high energy needs. I want you to enjoy ice cream every night. Like you, you need that mentally and physically, you need that energy dense foods. So for them to be like, Oh my gosh, the dietitian is telling me to eat ice cream to them. That's almost like an epiphany of like, Oh, okay. All food does fit. I do need ice cream. I do need pizza, my favorite foods and beverages to perform. Yeah. And have a social life. Right. And to understand, like understanding how much they are actually burning is just paramount for them. Like, I think I told a story, but I honestly thought that just like the recommended daily intake or whatever was like 2000 calories. Cause that's what was on like the, on nutrition labels. So I was like, okay, I guess everybody just burns 2000 calories. I guess that's just how that works. And then like, so I was trying to lose weight by going off of that 2000 calorie label as a 20 year old collegiate athlete running 80 miles a week. You know, it's like, obviously that was set up for disaster because I had no idea. I didn't know that that was, I could burn more than 2000 calories. And you bring up a great point. Yeah. And you bring up a great point of not comparing yourself to other people. So like even if you're running 80 miles per week and your teammate is running 80 miles per week, you guys still won't need the same calories or nutrients because you're two very different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like what you said just about creating awareness and figuring out like what, how you're feeling and, and what's going on there. Is there something that you see in just like the endurance world as a whole that kind of makes you cringe when it comes to just like the advice that gets doled out or like anything in terms of like products or like where is there things that endurance athletes should just like not listen to? Yeah, I mean, I would almost open this up to every athlete, especially New Mm -hmm. Year's resolutions going on, cleanses our body cleanses ourselves. We don't need to do cleanses, any fat or supplement. So I always encourage people to ask the questions. Why do you want to start using it or doing it? Who is endorsing it or who created it? And what is the financial incentive for that individual? And are you avoiding whole food groups? Because if those, if you can check yes to a lot of those things and not answer those questions well, it's probably too good to be true. And it's not going to be good for the long term, especially with supplements. What do you think is so appealing about that? Like why? I mean, around New Year's, right? Like what? And like the cleanses and these promises people make, like, why do you think people want to do them? The easy fix. So this instant Mm. gratification, especially how they advertise and who is advertising them. So social media influencers, celebrities, people want to be like them. On social media, people show you what they want you to see. So if they say, hey, you do this, you'll lose weight, you'll increase your performance. I think a lot of people are like, okay, I'll do that because I'm going to lose weight and increase performance. Not really thinking about, yeah, they look good. (laughs) I will too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The whole influencer thing and just marketing just works. <laughs> it like exists for a reason and people, everybody does it because it just, it just works. Um, so where should people get like nutrition advice? Cause I found this is hard, especially as endurance athletes and, you know, I, and with people like you or I who want to kind of meet these people and help them kind of figure out where, um, 
where to go for their advice or what to do in terms of nutrition. But, you know, there's not a lot of people like us. And again, that's why I really wanted to talk to you because you have this background in, in, um, like formal education in nutrition, which a lot of endurance athletes don't. So where should people find stuff? If it's not from people like, like you, like how can they get good information? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of organizations out there. So one of the organizations I'm a part of the collegiate professional sports dietetics association, they make a lot of fantastic infographs, easy to read handouts going through different, uh, in different education information for athletes. The U.S. Olympic Committee also has a great nutrition page. Something I've been diving into a lot and sharing with my students is examine.com. And it mm. really just, you can search something. It's not only nutrition, and it will come up with research, but also talk about it in layman's terms. So that's also a good resource. I'm really happy you brought that up. Examine.com is awesome. So if you're thinking about doing any type of new supplement, like look it up on there and it will straight up tell you if it works or not. It maybe not in like yes or no, but it will kind of like show you. It's like, it has been shown to uh, like help burn fat in rats or something like that. It'll give you like the examples of what actually has been proven as opposed to like what the marketing is kind of saying to you. So I really like that you brought up examine.com. That's a really, really good one. Um, so I'm sure we could go on from nutrition for a long time, but I also want to kind of get into some of the strength training stuff because along with being a registered dietitian, you are a certified strength and conditioning coach. And when you see that, it's like the CSCS, right? And that's kind of like the gold standard of strength and conditioning. And for people that are trying to figure out who are the experts to listen to, like the CSCS is a really big one. So what is the process like of getting the CSCS and like like, why is that the best one? Yeah, so it is changing, actually, on who will be able to sit for the CSCS exam. Uh, but though the CSCS is um, the governing body is the National Strength and Conditioning Association, which is also a great resource for education on nutrition and uh, strength and conditioning. And I think being getting my master's in strength and conditioning, it was always the NSCA. Like we didn't mm. talk about any other organization is like, nope, you are going to get your CSCS. To be a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, you have to have your CSCS. Uh, it is going to change. I'm not sure the year, but you are going to have to have a bachelor's degree from an accredited program, an exercise science program or similar to be able to sit for the CSCS exam. So they're going to be even more strict on who will have that credential. What is it right now? Anyone with a bachelor's degree. Okay. Anything. Yep. And that's still fair. I mean, that's still a way to have some sort of like barrier to, to get it. Cause I mean, like I have like NASM and it's like, good, it's fine. Like it does, it does the trick or like uh, ACE or whatever, like, but anybody can get those, right. And anybody can get them like relatively quickly. But so this has some sort of barrier to like who the person is that can, that can get that. Um, and like going into strength training as an endurance athlete is an, an, like a really cool route uh, in terms of like your professional experience, but it's all, and it's something we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. I'm a big advocate of strength training and, but there's certainly like a, 
a lack of experience for a lot of runners who might be getting into it, or even for like the obstacle course race athlete or trail runner who hasn't necessarily been in the weight room. And a lot of times it could be like information overload, or it can just be like the same couple of movements that's like people doing clamshells or donkey kicks and stuff. Um, so like, where should people start when it comes to like doing strength for the endurance athlete? Start with your body. That's all you need. I think when people go into a weight room, they get intimidated and they're like, okay, there's barbells, there's dumbbells. I need to lift a ton. And if you don't know how to move your body, if you don't know how to squat correctly, bench correctly, lunge correctly, and you load that, it's muscle memory. You're just going to get into these bad patterns and it will translate to injury or decrease running efficiency and economy. So I'd say practice those body weight movements. There's so much out there on YouTube, on um, like the NSCA has a whole app that you can download to get uh, how to do certain movements. So I would just start there. I mean, that's a great point, right? Because people do feel like you got to go in and, and like lift heavy weights. And, you know, I talk about that a lot. It's like, okay, lift, lifting heavy to produce the most power possible. Like that is the best way to, you know, really help without like, training for hypertrophy, which I know a lot of runners are worried about, like getting, getting bulky, which we talked about before, like putting on mass that they don't necessarily need, but like doing body weight stuff is probably the best place to actually start with the, with the fundamentals. And, you know, right now it's tricky also because like, like the access that people have for gyms, it might not be that readily available or like getting with a trainer or something like that. So I do like the idea of just like, Hey, just do some body weight stuff and, and see how that goes before you even start loading things up. What do you, what do you think people should avoid when they first start? Should it just be like, don't put use weights at all? Or what do you think people should like not do? I mean, I'm very much into functional movements. So thinking about movements and how this is going to translate to my running or if it's even going to help. So like I call them mirror muscles and strength and conditioning coaches will laugh because they'll know what they are too, but like bicep curls and like tricep stuff, leg press, leg curls aren't really doing anything functionally for you. They're just working on those mirror muscles. So if I had to say avoid anything, it's those. So really doing things like an isolation, yeah. right? Like yeah. Are- yeah. And when, as runners, it's, I wish we had video so I could show you, but like we bench and we row. We we want that movement of our arms to almost be like the running arms. We don't want them too high up. We don't want them too low. So thinking about how those movements in the weight room can translate to our running form. Hmm. Our lunge, paying attention to the length of our lunge, maybe that can translate to our stride length or whatever it may be. Hmm. And along that, do you see people like lunging, like too far or not far enough because like, yeah, lunge is a movement that, you know, anybody like any like strength training for runners program will have. Right. But when you're doing it on your own, there is definitely room for error. So how, what do you mean when you say like the length of it? I'd say you take a big step out and you will know if your lunge is too short because your knee will go way too far over your toes when you lunge down like your front leg Mm -hmm. so that means you have to lengthen that stride a little bit from moving the front leg up another thing is the hip 
A lot of us as runners are very externally rotated. So our toes go out, our feet go out. So in that mm. lunge position, if we find that back leg is is pointed out, that means our hip is going that way, which leads to, um, we know we have weak hips as runners can lead to a lot of complications that way. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And along that point, when people start getting into this, and yeah, we're talking in January, so there might be some some newbies going to the gym, people trying to, to get some strength training. Maybe they just want to avoid some injuries this year and, and, and like searching the strength training route for that. Uh, one thing that happens when you start hitting the gym is that you get sore. So h- how could people handle that? And like, what, what does soreness mean for the runner? And like, where is it appropriate to keep going or pull back? Like what, what is, how should people handle soreness in general? It goes back to nutrition. So making sure you're getting that post-workout meal of protein, carbohydrates, that will help reduce soreness. Uh, Sleep, making sure we are sleeping. That's when recovery happens. Uh, So if we aren't getting adequate sleep, we aren't going to recover that next day, but it's thinking about what your goals are. So if running is your goal, maybe lifting the day before your long run or the day before a hard workout is just not the best decision, but maybe lifting after it the same day, making your hard days hard, your easy days easy. I don't know, Rich, if that's your philosophy. Um, I like that. Yeah. So it's lifting after that workout because you're going to probably be sore from the workout. Now you're adding a little bit of soreness from the run or from the lift. So that would be my ultimate recommendation. Soreness feels good. <laughs> right, exactly. But when people have that 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 like delayed onset, the DOMs, they yeah. don't want to run with it. Um and like I just kind of deal with it. I'm just like, all right, I'm just gonna be sore and just handle it. Is there a point where you shouldn't do that? Because it feels bad um to a certain degree. Like if you overdo it, it feels like something might something might happen. Is there a line? with it when it comes to doms where you should really kind of back things off or can you just kind of suck it up and like deal with it? I'd say if you, if it's affecting your gait, like if you know that your legs are so sore that you are starting to shuffle or you're starting to heel strike a little bit more might be Mm. time. It might be a reason for a day off or you're waddling, just walking. Um, (laughs) A reason because we don't want to change our gait and change our running mechanics because that can lead to injury. That's a great way to kind of figure out if that's like the appropriate way. It's like, are you walking worse? Is it, are you going to start running worse? Um, but like in general, like the soreness probably can't hurt, right? Like if, if all things equal. Yeah. I mean, and sore versus injured are very different things. So like if it's sore for a few days, but that pain persists weeks, months, then it's yeah. not soreness anymore. It's something a little deeper. And is it always like the way to kind of figure that? Is it time based? Like how how could you fig- know if like what you're dealing with is just DOMS or if it is something worse? Is it mostly just like how is it going to feel over time? Like or if you like are like how do you not hurt yourself worse if like you don't know you're injured or not? I'd say uh, bilateral. So if you're sore on both sides, it's soreness. If it's one side, might be something deeper, and then it is time. 
So Dom should, if you are fueling properly, sleeping, hydrating, should be two to three days max. And then it should, you should be running um, again, normally walking again, normally. Cool. I like that. Like, yeah. Is it even on both sides? Are you sore on both sides? Like then you're probably okay. Chances are you didn't hurt both of your quads in, in, in one shot. So another part of the strength training piece that I have spoken about before and maybe not too much, but it's kind of something that I, you will hear is like this thing of, about getting bulky. And I heard it, I used to hear it a lot when I was working with people in, in person, uh, people would come in, not not exclusively females, but a lot of times females, but they just didn't want to get bulky. You'll hear it from male endurance athletes. Bulky is the word that for whatever reason is the one that gets thrown around. Um, they just want to be lean. They just want to be toned, not bulky. But um, what is the process like? So when people talk about getting bulky, it, it basically means they don't want to look like they have added a lot of muscle, right? And... I kind of push back against that, but like, what do you have to do to actually become bulky? And like, what is the fear in that, that people have? Yeah, you will have to lift much heavier than a runner probably would and eat a lot more, especially around workouts in order to get quote unquote bulky. And I encourage runners and my swimmers, like you are endurance athletes, as long as you are still doing a ton of running and a ton of swimming, you're, you can't get bulky. If you were just lifting, then maybe, um, but you are doing that endurance piece as well. It's just going to be more advantageous for, for yourself when the thing that you're doing the most is endurance based and it's going to, your body's going to know that it's, it's either going to need muscle or it's not going to need muscle. And if by continually doing that endurance training through the strength training, like, yeah, it's not going to just going to slap on muscle because I mean, you will adapt to whatever you're doing. And if you're just doing muscle, like, yeah, you'll probably gain that. But what you said is so perfect because even if you are just doing strength training, you still won't get put on muscle if you're not eating for it. Like maybe if you just start, but you have to eat for it. You have to put yourself in a surplus to like actually have muscle stick to you. So like I, and if everybody could just get gain muscle, like there'd be way more jacked people walking around. There's not that many jacked people because it's not that easy. Exactly. So, so yeah, like eating for it is like the main thing. It's like, you got to really eat to get like big and yoked. And I really challenge if you do not strength train, just finding those body weight stuff. I haven't been hurt. Knock on wood. I have not been injured ever since I really started strength training two to three times a week. Yeah. Where would you put it if I know everybody's like kind of different, like this isn't like this isn't this is definitely an it depends question. But if people are chronically getting hurt, like if you had to put a hierarchy on where people should focus first, like where would you what would you say? Would you have them do like focus on the nutrition first or strength training first? Or is there like external factors like sleep or like running form? Like what do you think you where would you put what would you want to talk about first thing? If people are chronically injured, I'd say being in a run specialty background, I would ask them what shoes they're running in (laughs) and then how they're running in those shoes. So thinking of the biomechanics, maybe running barefoot and seeing how their knees are aligning with their hips and then their ankles, because it is all connected and then strengthening those weaknesses that I see in the running form and mechanics. 
Hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 and that's like definitely like the low hanging fruit part when you're like how you're running in the shoe. Are you, do you, are you meaning how, how the shoe's changing the way you're running? Or are you meaning like actually like the form that you have, if you're a heel striker versus a like four foot, midfoot striker, like stride length, like, what do you mean by, by, by that? Yeah. So if, so well, I'll give an example of like it band syndrome. So a lot of runners mm-hmm. get it band syndrome. And I find that a lot when they are in shoes that are way too supportive because when they're running, their feet are on the outside because they have that built-in arch support under their arch that they don't need. And so educating them that your, your feet, your knees and your hips are all aligned. And that's why the outside of your legs are injured. Rarely do I talk about stride length because stride length, it's really where we put our foot in our center of mass. So for everyone, it is so different. Um, so it's mm-hmm. more of foot strike that I pay attention to and then how our knee and hips follow. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause the stride length thing, like I was actually just like having a conversation with someone who doesn't really know much about running the other day. And they're talking about like, Oh no, but if your stride lengths longer, you'll be faster. And it's like, well, like it depends on like where you're landing and like your hips and this and that. And that's like the main thing, right? Like, and how, how that all works. Um, and when it comes to the footwear piece, how have things changed in terms of like the gait analysis process? Like when I was working run specialty, uh, like let's say when I just like first started running this probably us working, there was like probably 2007 where like, it was just kind of rear foot gait analysis. And like, if you could see any of like arch kind of like tipping in or ankle kind of like dipping down, which would be like your, your standard pronation, it would be like, all right, let's try on some GTS. Let's give you the a six 2100 series or whatever it is. And has that changed much? Like, what does that look like now? Because it seems like it's kind of bounced back from the people who are getting consistently put in a stability shoe. And maybe, and we're talking a little bit before we even started is like with a trend of what's selling better seems to be more on the neutral side where it used to be always stability back when I was working there. And I think if people go up, they found something that they just have been told in terms of, Oh, I'm a I need support because I overpronate. So, what does that look like now in terms of like figuring out how a person should like select a shoe? Mm-hmm. Well, first, a lot of people don't know what overpronation means and pronation in general. Like pronation is everyone pronates. It's a matter of if we overpronate or underpronate. So, it's having that conversation and watching them walk in the shoe but also run in the shoe because you could be your ankles could be to the floor because you overpronate so bad walking, but then as soon as you run, you run on your midfoot. So, you don't need mm-hmm. that stability shoe and runs but we are going more towards that neutral less support is better uh because it allows for that natural movement of the foot and things do change um when it comes to foot strengthening in a neutral shoe versus a stability shoe yeah like what's actually better for the the whole athlete as opposed to like trying to fix the the symptom you know and i'm sure i put like hundreds of people in stability shoes that like probably didn't need stability shoes just based off of like that, those markers that you had on the technology that was available and just like what the general philosophy was behind how to help runners the most. And it was like trying to reduce their motion as opposed to helping them figure out like how to naturally move and how to be, and how to be more holistic and how to strengthen their, their bodies. It was all like just 
slap a wedge on the inside of their shoe and just like send them out the door. Um, are you, what kind of trends are you seeing from that? Are you, is it, is it, are shoe companies talking about the natural movement of things or what does that look like? Like, what do you foresee like being available to athletes? Yeah. I mean, stability shoes will always be uh, available because athletes, some athletes do need them. I would say the majority though, do need or should run in neutral shoes it's really hard to say. I mean, the shoe brands are talking about moving towards more neutral, more minimalist, but they are still going to always have that stability shoe available. They can't just get rid of it because if it ain't broke for some people, it's like, don't fix it. You want that tried and true shoe you've worn for 30 years. And there's definitely a place for some people where it's like, uh, yeah, they're like mm, no amount of strength work is going to going to help you out here you can like what is it like when you scrunch the the towel with your toes like no amount that's happening is bringing those arches back do you think that most people would be okay in a neutral shoe like if you like if you didn't know anything about anybody and they were just like what shoe should i wear like tell me one thing and you had no other questions would you just be like the ghost or like what do you think you got it you answered it yeah and we talk about this as colleagues at work is like what is that shoe and it's like we would have to come up with someone like on the phone, like, hey, this is my running history. What should I get? It's like, oh, here's an option. So, yeah, you'll probably like this one. What's your stance on the minimal stuff? I mean, when we were talking about our own shoe personal preference, uh, you kind of leaned toward minimal. And there was definitely this big phase when it came to, and just like anything, any, any trends that happened, like shoes were big and chunky. It was cushioned to kind of help uh, the athletes um, manage the run. And then it kind of swung the completely other way and went completely minimal and, and Vibrams came out and they were, that was like the most minimal shoe option possible. But then every other brand pretty much started to put out some sort of minimal option. There were spinoff brands that kind of took that idea and just kind of made it make a little bit more sense to the modern human being. And now it's kind of phased the other direction where it's like, okay, super maximal. And like where we are now is kind of like in the middle. It's like, good cushion but that isn't like slow and chunky and now we just like have these awesome foams that like perform really well and um you can run fast and like feel good in them but there is still like that minimal approach and there's a lot of times people want to look to that to help with the biomechanics of things so when people ask you about the minimal stuff like how do you kind of explain where that fits? So like, what's your general thoughts on it? Well, my general rule of thumb is we should run in multiple shoes. We shouldn't just have one shoe in rotation. So if someone is interested in that minimal world of shoes, getting a pair and using it maybe for your three mile run, not your 13 mile run and seeing how it affects your body and your mechanics. Minimal shoes do add a little more, um, pressure to the Achilles and the calves because you are pushed on your forefoot a little bit more. So it's putting that type of shoe in a rotation is not a bad idea, but sticking with your tried and true also. Yeah. And like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've been doing with them. I'll wear them to the gym or I'll do like, if I'm doing doubles, if my volume's higher or whatever, I'll do my like three to five mile doubles and like those really lightweight type of minimal type shoes just to get that experience with that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Cause it's hard. Cause when they first came out, it was like, 
they were selling this promise that they were going to like fix you and people would get them and running them solely as their shoe thing and they were going to be fixed and they would get hurt. (laughs) So that wouldn't really be um, a viable option. And we have to think what shoes we're coming from, like our work shoes. We might be in high heels. We might be in shoes that are, because minimal means you're a low heel to toe offset. That's ultimately the definition when it comes to minimal. Mm -hmm. So if you're in high heels and then you're running in minimal shoes, your body's not used to that minimal drop. So you might get hurt and it won't actually fix things. So we almost need to find that happy medium. Yeah, totally. Or, and like, or, and progress yourself into it and try to change things a little bit and know it's going to change. And if you are running in like a, a stability shoe, when you're, you're striking on the outside of your heel, if you're probably not going to want to do that with a pair of minimal shoes, but um, you might still try. And if you just put them on, don't try to change anything else. Like it's probably not going to go that well. Um, and speaking of shoes in the winter time, the best shoes are snowshoes, right? Oh, yeah. So like when getting into, uh, and like, this is something, there are some like races that are local. It doesn't snow a ton here, but like, I think you can go to some ski mountains and like they'll supply snow for you um, to like run around with. So if people want to start snowshoeing, is it just like running? Is it like, I was looked up some videos, like when I was like kind of doing some research on this and it looks like people are just like kind of running normal. Yeah. Is that just, can you just stop on a pair and go running? Yeah. I mean, it all depends on the snowshoes. So there are running specific snowshoes. You don't want the trekking snowshoes because you are going to bruise your calves like crazy because you're just going to hit your calves and your shins. Yeah. So what's the difference? Is there there like a hinge? So they're super lightweight and there's a hinge. Yeah. These snow racing snowshoes, I don't know how much my way, but maybe a couple pounds, not even. Uh They're very lightweight, but yeah, you just... It's almost like high knees the whole time. But I found the love of snowshoeing from my dad. And I will tell you, I hated it because it's hard. But you have to just pace yourself and go off slow. When you do that, what kind of metric can you follow? Are you just like, so say like, because you have competed at a high level with this, right? Like you're good and like fast at at snowshoeing. Is that the appropriate term at snowshoeing? And... Do you learn the pacing, like how I know what my easy run pace is on flat pavement, or do you just kind of go out on feel when it comes to snowshoeing? So I will preface, I don't time anything. So I don't follow metrics. For real? Yeah. I, you don't time anything ever? I, I mean, I have loops. So I'm like, okay, this loop is about an hour. I know how many miles it is, but I'm such a time-based runner that I will go out for a three-hour run versus a 15-mile run. Because it all yeah. depends how you feel that day. So with snowshoeing, especially after a hard snowshoe run, sometimes I might only get two miles in and it's an hour, depending on if I'm breaking <laughs> trail. But that is a strength. My heart rate is sky high. So it's it's a cross-training day, I would say. Is the impact lower? It is. I mean, you would think. And that's really it, what it got me. I broke my foot my senior year of high school. And so I couldn't run for almost six to seven months. It was a bad break, but I snowshoed through the winter because it didn't affect my broken foot. And so that's really when I got huh. super, super fit with snowshoeing. No way. And you, you had a good spring then? I did. I PR'd after not running for I September through April. I didn't run. And then in June, I hit a PR just from snowshoeing and pool running. I'm also an avid pool runner. 
Ugh, are you serious? <laughs> that's that's brutal. That is that is rough. Why snowshoeing over cross country skiing? For me, my parents are gonna laugh. I was a terrible cross country skier. I would always fall. Down. I grew up downhill skiing too, so I think it's just okay. comparing to downhill skiing. You're just fast. You're attached to the skis. And we're down across country. I just always fell down. I used to live in Alaska. So we would do it a lot as a kid. And I just hate it. So snowshoeing is just personal preference. You can do it everywhere. That's a good point. And they're probably, they're easier to travel with too, I'm sure. Right. So you can, yeah, you can't just like go out and cross. Like I could go out and snowshoe if it like snows a couple inches here in the city. I could do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I like that. I, I like that idea for, for cross training, um, and just like building volume that way. Do you put it in, in, in part of your training regimen or are you kind of just doing it for enjoyment now? I do it for enjoyment, but I will say that year I broke my foot. That was my training. It was pretty much wow. pool running and snowshoe running. And that was the running because I don't run on trails. Uh, even in the winter, I will I will snowshoe or not run at all. I have a trainer, bike trainer. I have an elliptical. So it's either trails or nothing. You want? You mean you want? You don't run on roads? I will maybe once or twice a year, just for really? friends and commodity or camaraderie. Yeah. I. Why is that? It hurts and. Mm-hmm. I just love the trails. I something about it. I think because I don't have to run road, it's like why well, run road? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's fair. Um, so, what kind of goals you got for the year? It, like, if we can race and trail racing might happen. Snowshoeing? Are there snowshoe races happening? There are. Yeah, Southern Vermont has quite a has a series, so there will be. I All haven't right. heard anything about the U.S. champs which will be in like March, but I'm not sure. But from a trail running perspective, I am on a couple race committees. We're talking about hopefully being optimistic about having races. I have not raced probably like trail race seriously, probably in a few years, but I'm thinking about maybe hopping into a 50 K or something, seeing what happens. Nice. Going to ultra route. Cause you've done some ultras, right? Yeah, I've done a f- 150k, just 150k. I'm one, I'm very lucky that I can go from like zero to a hundred and stay healthy. And I think it's the lifting and the cross training. So right. I can not train much, but still run really well. Another perk to knowing, to getting your nutrition dialed in and strength training, you can just run. Yeah, you can just go. That's true. So you're just kind of playing it by ear and just like, if something pops up, you'll 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 go into it if you're feeling ready yeah, for it. Yeah, I have a couple friends who are doing hundreds that are on the calendar, so I'll probably pace those. I love pacing ultras. That's almost a race for me, except I don't have to actually run the hundred miles. I can just run a little bit of it, but still get the race feel. How about you? Yeah, and I have it's it's hard it's hard to tell. I'm like I'm like throwing around different things every day. It seems like every race that's going to happen is going to be in Florida. So I don't necessarily want to go there, um, but I don't know. I'm just not trying to put anything in the books. Just trying to train. We just like to train, you know. Yeah, and that's the silver lining um, of this time is it's train your train with yourself, you know, and have a race with yourself and just compete with yourself. And finding other reasons that you're doing it, 
you know, like not needing a race to continue to improve there, there needs to be something else there because this just proves that like you can't have account on external factors to like for your well being, for your wellness or for like your drive to improve because they can disappear. (laughs) Like they literally have can go away when it's external. So trying to figure out what that is. And like, that was something that became clear this past year is like, I always knew I really liked training, but then this past year I was like, Oh, like I'm kind of obsessed with training and like, doesn't really matter if there's going to be one out there. I'm still going to do it no matter what. Um, well, cool. Carolyn. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today. We'll wrap that up. I don't want to keep you all day. So uh, where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram, CA stalker RD. Um, I, Carolyn stalker performance.com is where you can find out the nutrition services, strength and conditioning services, and then the running coaching services through Chosky Endurance Collective. For sure. I'll make sure to link to all of those things in the show notes here so that people have a good way to, to find you and follow along that journey. Um, well, cool. Again, I really do appreciate you popping on. I thought a lot of great takeaways here. So I'm going to hit stop, but we'll, can, we'll be back at that initial screen. So um, that'll be it. We'll just be signing off then. Great. Thank you. All right. That was great. Carolyn is great gig. Make sure to give her a follow and check out her coaching offerings. So as we move into 2021, I want to tell you a little bit more about the specific strength training coaching that we have for the runners and for the OCR athletes. It is now live and it is available for you for $19 a month. Really not that much money. So Every year, I try to add in something into my training, and I really encourage the athletes that I coach to do the same thing. It's going to really try to help level up their performance, and strength training was an absolute game changer when it came to my progress, when I really dove in, figured out how to make it work, and how it will lead me to my goals. So I've taken that 10-plus years of strength coaching knowledge that I do have and started this strength coaching program where you'll get live progressive workouts that will work you They'll give you the directions you need and the access to me as a coach so that you make sure you're doing the right things in the weight room and that you're not wasting your time and to make sure that the things you're doing are actually benefiting you and that you're not just kind of spinning your wheels doing what you think you should be doing. So take a look at that in the link in the show notes. It is ongoing. It is live. You can give me shoot me a message at rich at reinforced running.com for some more questions on that and I'll be happy to chat with you to see if it would be a good fit. Okay, we will talk to you soon.